Our Old Testament reading this morning is Joshua 7, verses 1 through 5, and then we'll read verses 19 through 26. You can find that on page 182 in the Bibles we provide and on page 52 in the Children's Bible. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things, for Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about three thousand men went up from there, from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about thirty-six of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Cherubim and struck them at the descent and the hearts of the people melted and became as water. In verse 19, Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him, and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent and behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel. And they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan the son of Zerah and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and daughters and his oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones, and they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned his, from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor, the word of the Lord. And our New Testament reading is from the Gospel of Luke. It's chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. You can find that on page 859 in the Bibles we provide and on page 192 in the Children's Bible. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you, then, will worship me, it will all be yours." And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. 
And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. The word of the Lord. Our sermon text from this morning is Acts chapter 4, verse 32 to chapter 5, verses 11, which can be found on page 912 in the Bibles we provide and page 270 in the children's Bibles. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. They had everything in common. The great power of the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as there were owners of lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid it at the apostles' feet. It was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was, all, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. With his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep at for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. He said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. This is the word of the Lord. It's much harder to say thanks be to God in those situations, is it not? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you have given us your word. Now speak through it. Speak to us, speak to our hearts that we may know what you want us to hear this morning. Let these words be your words and not my words. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, As a kid growing up, my desire and goal early on was I wanted to be Indiana Jones. Um, I thought he was the coolest, most awesome person of all time. I even had like a rope that I pretended to use like a whip and I'd run around my yard and try to whip things. It never wrapped around, it never hurt any, it hurt me, but never hurt anybody else. And it was this idea of this map and treasure and clues, I loved it. So when the movie Goonies came out, it was like the best thing that ever happened in my life. Because here, if you've never seen the movie Goonies, first, sorry, um, there is this kids, they're about to lose their house, they go up in their attic and they find a treasure map that leads them to One-Eyed Willie, who's this pirate who supposedly landed in their, it makes no sense. One-Eyed Willie, who was a pirate in their town, and they were gonna find the treasure and save their houses and save their towns. It's all these kids, like basically my age. And so it really started to dawn in me, you know, that might be real, you know. 
So when we went to like garage sales, I would open up frames and look at the backs of pictures, convinced that there's gonna be a treasure map somewhere. When I couldn't find one, I decided I would just make my own. So I did, and the, like the woods behind my house, I would bury treasure, set up booby traps, because there's always booby traps when it comes to treasure, and I would draw a map. And I would leave it in random places hoping people would find the map. Never, never, nobody found it. So then I just pretended like I found the map and I would go find the treasure that I buried <laughs> over and over again. And the reason I even tell you that story is that is so much about what God's word is. There is a treasure for us to find in every passage and every story and the Bible itself and God through the Holy Spirit leaves us clues to find them. And for us in some of these more difficult passages, we need to see the clues to figure out what God's doing. Because if we're honest, most of us would be much happier if this passage was not in the Bible. Or we'd be much happier if it ended differently. If Ananias goes, you know, you're right, I totally lied, I'm so sorry, here's the rest of the money, everybody gets a big group hug and all are forgiven. That's what we want to happen. It's the Disney ending of the Bible story. But that's not what happened. And so we have to understand why did the Holy Spirit, we believe God's word is inerrant, so every part of it is in there for a reason. Why did God see fit for this story to be here for us to study this morning? Because until we understand that, we're gonna miss out on seeing God for who he really is. Now the question is not what this morning. It, the what is pretty clear, okay? They sold a piece of property that belonged to them and only gave part of it to the church and pretended like it was all of it. The question for us is why? Why would they do it? And then why did God respond that way? Those are the only two questions we're gonna deal with this morning. But to do that, like I said, let's find the clues. Clue number one is the context. Again, as you've heard before, the chapter headings were added later to the Bible translations. And this is one of those places they did a very poor job. It makes no sense to break up this passage into two different chapters. But as we look at it, we've gotta ask ourselves the question, why is this in here? Why is this part in the Bible? Because this is just a recap. The end of chapter four is the same thing as we studied a couple weeks ago at the end of chapter two. So either Luke is just forgetful, maybe he's just, you know, that happens from time to time. I forgot what I wrote, you know, this last time. Or he's a bad historian and wants to tell the same story over and over again, both options. Or there is some reason why this needs to be repeated at this point in time. Leading up to this as a reminder, Jesus resurrected from the dead, spent 40 days with his disciples, ascended to heaven, told them to wait on the promised Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes to them in power on Pentecost. They go and proclaim the truth of who Jesus is. Thousands literally believe they're doing this huge miracles, these amazing preaching. And the religious leaders say, stop doing that. Don't do that anymore. So we find this moment, that's where the church is. And as we see this picture of the church, we find out a couple things about them. One, they were united. It said they were of one heart and one mind and one soul. Connected, deeply connected together. They were on the same page. Not only that, they were unselfish. It said there was none about them that had need. They all saw their possessions as belonging to everyone else. And they were unafraid. Even though they were warned not to continue preaching, they kept doing it. They kept proclaiming this truth. And so when we see that, why do we need to know this right here? We need to take a step back and look at the bigger picture of scripture. And if you go to Deuteronomy chapter 15, there is this picture that God had for his covenant people. 
He said, what I want you to do is this. When you guys later in time, as God's people, there was this thing called the year of the Sabbath. So every seventh year, all debts were forgiven. And everyone, and the, the wording there says, and there should be not a needy one among you. So when we see that there and this here, let's connect the dots. This is the showing of God's true covenant community that we find going on right here. This is what God had intended for his people to be together, living in obedience. And in the midst of their obedience, there's this amazing blessing that's going on. And we see that up against the religious leaders of the day. The religious leaders were supposed to be the ones who were keepers of the law. They were supposed to be the ones who were helping keep the traditions and leading people to God. But what do we find more and more? People stopped going to the temple and started going to the believers. They started going there to hear about Christ and hear about the gospel. They started to go there to get their needs met, both spiritual and physical. People stopped going to the temple and started going to them because they were the true covenant community. Keep that in mind. We're going to need that later. But also we're introduced to Barnabas, this character out of nowhere. And we're given, you know, later in time, he's very important. He goes with Paul, missionary journeys. But for right now, all we need to know is the context of what he's doing. He was the example that they set apart saying that people were doing this. People had these possessions, they had fields and homes, they sold it and gave the proceeds to the apostles to give to those in need. So it's an important picture I'm giving you as an example for him. And not only that, we, clearly he does this in the covenant community or Luke's not gonna record it. People saw what happened and part of the response was he gets a nickname. His name's actually Joseph, but it says the apostles called him Barnabas as the son of encouragement. They gave him this kind of honor, as it were, because of what he was doing, and he was becoming a leader in the church. So that's our context to understand. So how does this lead us to our motive as to why? It's the very first word in chapter five. But. We have Barnabas, but Ananias and Sapphira. So when we see that there's these two things on opposite sides of each other, we see this but that puts them together, we can then easily see what was their motive? What were they doing? They saw what happened with Barnabas. He does this amazing thing and gets all this recognition. And they want the recognition. They just don't wanna make the sacrifice. They wanna do, they want people to look at them the way that the church looked at Barnabas. They just weren't willing to pay the price. And what we're told in the Bible that that word is hypocrisy. It is wearing a mask. It is playing a part. It is looking, trying as hard as we can to look like something that we are not. And that is so dangerous in the church, especially when we see other people's gifts. You look around and see someone who's gifted in a way that you're not and go, ah, I want to be more like that. I do that all the time. I am, people that know me know this, so it's no big surprise. I'm just not compassionate. I, I wish that I was. Like, I don't cry at Hallmark commercials. They just don't really get to me. I'm like, yeah, it's a card, no big deal. You know, things happen, I'll watch things, and I'm just like, that's life, isn't it? I mean, you know, I feel bad for you, I guess, but it's just, again, I'm not saying that's a good thing. That's just who I am. And so I gravitate and long for people who are compassionate. I, I look at like an Alan Edick or a Clay Harrington or like a Steve Mulder or like a Kathy Smith and go, I want to be like them. I want to be more like that. I want, and there's a healthy 
I need to not just be a jerk all the time, but there's also this unhealthy, I don't appreciate and recognize the gifts that God has given me because I'm so busy looking at the gifts of someone else. And for us as the church, that is so much of what we do is trying to be something that we're not. George McDonald says half of all the misery in the world is because we try to look instead of be what we're not. We're trying to look like we're trying to project to other people this idea that we've got it all together. We want people in this church, we want people in the community, people in our families, and we work really hard to project this image that we've got it all together. And we want people to see us as good godly people rather than actually sometimes being good godly people. We'd rather be seen as someone who follows Jesus than actually rather than follow Jesus. And that is what is so hard in this, in this hypocrisy that goes on that we're all a part of. We all have people that we long to impress. We all have places that we would compromise so other people would look at us differently. And it is so destructive and damaging to us and to the church because it makes that opportunity for us to lose the credibility of who we are and what's going on and how God has made us. And that's what they are denouncing. And the worst part about some of this, this, this sin that they had is that, can I make the connections? It said, you're testing God. So while we read what happened with Jesus and his temptation, it said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And what testing God is, the best picture I can think of is if you've got a dog in an electric fence, that's testing God. You run as fast as you can and you're gonna test where the boundaries of the fence are. If you ever seen a dog that's well-trained, they'll go right up to the edge. But for me, I'll do that with God. What can I get away with? How far can I go before God's gonna say something or do something? It's almost like they're challenging and I'm challenging God. It's like, okay, you know all things. You know that I'm lying, do something. There's that heart of rebellion in the midst of it. But also there's this picture of Satan. He said, how are you being energized or filled by Satan right now? Now for us, that's a, that's a logical leap for me. I can't clearly say, hey, you told a lie, you're filled with Satan. That's, that's much for me. So what we need to understand is where's the connection to that? Where, where is that? We'll go there. But also what was so dangerous was this was the sin of the Pharisees. Again, we have these two covenant communities, the false and the true covenant community. What does Jesus say over and over again about the Pharisees? The yeast of the Pharisees is hypocrisy. They act like they are whitewashed tombs, which means they look beautiful on the outside, but nothing but death inside. Said that their hearts are, their lips like praise my name, but their hearts are far from me. They were the kings of hypocrisy. They wanted everyone to look at them and see them in a way that they weren't really. And for us as God's people, we are sometimes so scared to look different than the world that we are not willing to actually be different than the world. God did not call us to be like everybody else. There's plenty of those people out there. We're called to be salt and light and to shine forth his glory. And yet, how often do I compromise his glory for my comfort? How often am I willing to project something that is not me to protect the real me because I don't want people to think I'm like that? Because following Jesus is really hard. So what God needs to do, he sees this is the temptation of where the church is going and the idea is I've got to protect my people. 
So our next clue, we've had the clue of the context. Our next clue is the verb that's used to Ananias and Sapphira. It says, kept for oneself, kept back. If you look at the Greek of the Old Testament, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, we find that exact same word. Now, sometimes, let's be honest, pastors use the Greek to look smart, like to kind of feel like, hey, I know stuff that you don't. A, I can't look smart to you. I could try, but it won't work. So the idea is there's a reason for this, though, because we can't understand what the Bible is trying to say to us if we don't understand what it was trying to say to the original audience. There were people there that experienced this and heard. There are people who were gonna read this early on that needed to understand what it meant. So until we understand what they understood, we're just shooting in the dark. Or we're trying to make the Bible fit into our culture all the time and it's saying what we want it to say. So the original Greek here, this kept back, we find in Judges or Joshua chapter seven, which we also read this morning. And it's this picture of Achan. That Achan's sin was that God had told the people as you go into the promised land, devote the people to destruction, take the things and give them to me. They don't belong to you, they belong to me. Achan saw things he thought were valuable, he took them, he hid them in his tent, and not only was he punished later, all of Israel was punished because of his sin. They went to battle, 36 people died. After beating Jericho, they couldn't beat Ai, this really small town. And when it's found out what happened, Achan is put to death. That's two deaths pretty quickly we're talking about. So as we look at that and we see the connection, okay, what was going on in Achan's time? What's going on with the church time? These are people who seemingly are part of God's covenant community. These weren't the crazy people, the pagans or the people that were wild out there. These were the people that were dying. So why? Why when God so often just glosses over sin, or at least it seems that way? Why often is this not the punishment that happens? Why now? Let's take one more step back. Two other instances that we can look at. Leviticus chapter 10. There's a guy named Abihu and Nadab. They're brothers. They're the sons of Aaron. And they offer what's called strange fire. Don't really know what that is. But because of that, it's false worship. God strikes him dead. Then there's Uzzah, 2 Samuel chapter six. They're, they're transporting the ark from place to place. The ox stumbles, the ark falls, he touches the ark, he dies. It's easy for us to say, man, these are really small things. I'm glad I wasn't alive during some of that. But what is the consistent theme of all of these things? It's God's holiness. It is God's Holiness. And these specific moments happen at important times in the redemptive history. You look at Nahab, Nadab and Abihu. It is right after the tabernacle has been erected and the people are getting to worship for the first time. They've been in Egypt for a long time in the wilderness. They now have a place to meet with God. And these priests are about to lead the people astray in false worship. So what does God do? No, I'm gonna protect my church. We look at going into the Achan, going into the promised land, this new land where they were gonna go to be salt and light, to be different than everybody else in the world. And what does he do? First thing, he disobeys. The temptation would then be for the entire church to say, I can do this on my own. I don't need to listen to him. I don't need to listen to God. Let me do my thing. God sees the temptation and he says no. And then as they're transporting the ark and Uzzah touches the ark, which was not allowed because of its holiness. 
It's a time when David had just become king. They were about to build the temple, which is the place where all people, all nations would come and gather and hear about God. It was holy. Now the temple is this collection of God's people. They are the temple of the Holy Spirit. They are the ones who are gonna proclaim not only his grace and mercy, but his holiness. And so often for me, for us, we forget about God's holiness in the midst of his grace. And that was the temptation. At this time with Ananias and Sapphira in the early church, what have they been hearing about over and over again? Jesus Christ, rightly so. The gospel's so essential, so important. They've seen the Holy Spirit be at work, infusing the people, working through the people, doing amazing things. What have we not heard any of? God's holiness. So at this part, at this kind of crossroads in the history of the church, God wants to show up and remind them, I am holy. I am a holy God. And so when he kills Ananias and Sapphira, there's no other way to say it. It's to remind the church of his holiness. And for us as his people, it is so easy for us to forget his holiness, that he is a holy God, that he is perfect. He cannot be around sin. And we look at that and we wonder, what would be the response of the church? I want you to, if you got your Bibles, open them back up. I wanna read how the church responded to this moment. Chapter five, beginning with verse 12, or you can just listen to me, either one. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. They were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of men and women. So they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were healed. Our assumption is, if we truly talk about God in his holiness, what's it gonna do? It's gonna turn people off. We need to make God more palatable to people who don't know. What we see here is God does this with Ananias and Sapphira, and the church explodes. More than ever before, people were added, multitudes of men and women. Why? Because the gospel of Jesus Christ has no power if we don't see the holiness of God. What's it worth to us? If it costs us nothing, why follow Jesus? But when we see God rightly in his holiness, we see how perfect he is and we see that he offers us forgiveness. He offers us grace. He offers us mercy in the the vision of his son, Jesus Christ. How much more valuable does that become for us as his people? And then when we see the value of the gospel, we are reminded of our call as God's people to be holy. Because what we do matters. I believe all the time the lie, you know what, it's forgiven, so it just doesn't matter. 
You and I are the temples of the Holy Spirit. You and I are the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. People see God and see Jesus through you and through me. And so the ways that we are hypocritical, the ways that we put on the mask, the ways that we try to portray ourselves as other than we are, does a disservice to who God truly is. He is holy and he is gracious and merciful. We are called to live out his light as his people.